We are in the book of Revelation. Still, we've been in Revelation for a little while. We're almost to the end, actually, just a few more weeks, and we'll be at the very end of the book of Revelation and see how everything ties together and what the end is going to look like. Well, as we've been going through this, we've seen uh, the Apostle John wrote this down. You know, he was exiled by the Roman government uh, because of stuff he was preaching, and he was exiled to this prison island, and being there, Jesus came to him. And uh, it must have been such a unique experience for John. Because at this point, he's the last disciple alive of the original 12, uh, from what we believe. And he's there, and he sees Jesus now for the first time in decades. And Jesus tells him, I'm going to give you a vision of stuff that's going to happen at the end of the world. He says, John, I want you to write all of it down. Everything you see, everything you hear, use the, bur- the words to the best of your ability and write everything down. And so John starts to do that. Jesus gives John a message for the Christian church, and that's Revelation 2 and 3. And then Jesus sh- begins to show John the vision of the end. Uh, Revelation 4 and 5, John gets a vision of what the throne room of God looks like. And then in Revelation 6, judgments begin to happen on the world. And they begin to happen in sets of seven. You see, God had a, a scroll in his hand. Jesus came up and took the scroll, and the scroll was sealed seven times. And every time Jesus would open one of the seals, a judgment would happen in the world. Jesus gets to the seventh seal, opens it, and then at that point, another seven judgments happen. Angels, seven angels come out. Each of them's given a trumpet. They blow their trumpets. More judgments begin to happen on the world. And then we get to a section here after the seventh trumpet is blown um, in the middle of the book of Revelation where it's kind of like a pause in the description where it it has appeared, I mean, again, it could be, we don't really know, but it has appeared up to this point, things have been happening chronologically. Each one of the seals were popped and then a judgment would happen. Each one of the trumpets were blown and then a judgment would happen. But right here in the middle of the book of Revelation, it is a break from the chronological events, the step-by-step process. And we get a description of some of the individuals who are taking part in the end of the world. Uh, we've seen a description of the Antichrist. We've seen a description of the Antichrist's right-hand man, his false prophet, who, who uh, uh, kind of creates a religion around worshiping the Antichrist. And they make a big idol of the Antichrist uh, that's able to do certain uh, things, trying to imitate what God can do. Well, then here, as we're going to look today, we're going to see a few more of these individuals introduced to us. Uh, It's still a part of this middle descriptive section of some of uh, uh, these individuals taking part in the end of the world. So look with me in Revelation chapter 14. Uh, It's on page 1036 if you want to use the Bible on the pew rack there in front of you. Uh, Pretty much go to the end and just flip back a few pages. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. 
The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And so John looks. Now I want you to notice, uh, uh, Alyssa, go back to verse 1 there. Every time John says, then something happened, then is like the introduction to a new section of what he's saying here. So he says, then. So this is a new section he's talking about. He looks and he sees on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is like the hill that Jerusalem is on. Uh, But it's also representative of the presence of God, uh, where God resides, like the temple is on Mount Zion physically in the uh, Holy Land. And so he says, I looked and behold, on Mount Zion. So he's talking about in God's presence, he sees Jesus standing there. And with Jesus are the 144,000 that he mentioned a few chapters ago. Uh, what I believed, as I, I, I described it in detail when we talked about the 144,000 from, um, I think it was Revelation, what, 7? A few chapters ago. Um, uh, that there are 12 groups that were described, each containing 12,000, 12 12s. Uh, in his description. So the complete number, uh, it says back in Revelation 7, these 144,000 were sealed. And then a few verses after that, it says the ones who were sealed are all the Christians. And so this is all the believers here are standing with Jesus and they're bearing Jesus' name. They're bearing God's name. Um, whether it's physically written on their foreheads, most likely the description here is spiritual, um, that, that they've been sealed by God and they're standing with Jesus in heaven. And John says, there's a voice that's ringing out, sounds like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, but also sounds like harps. So the idea is this voice that John is hearing is very loud, very intense, very overwhelming, but also very beautiful. it, It is incredible, but it's almost bursting his eardrums with the volume level. Look at verse three. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So only these believers know what is being sung in this song. Uh, Only the ones who are sealed by God can know the song. Uh, Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So he says they've not defiled themselves. This is all spiritual language. Uh, These are those who have been faithful to God throughout the end. Faithful to God uh, through all of the difficulties uh, that came. Uh, They've been faithful uh, through all the persecution, faithful uh, uh, through all of the judgments that came. They've continued to be faithful to God, and they're standing with Jesus in heaven is is what we're seeing here. Uh, They've made it to heaven here at the end of all things, as again, this is a a glimpse of some of the people involved in the end of the world. Um, uh, They're standing there with Jesus, and uh, look at what it says. They are the first fruits for God. Now, this, this language, first fruits, this is tithe language. Tithe language, giving to God language. Sometimes, though, as followers of Jesus, as followers of God, we get confused about that word tithe. And sometimes we label anything that we give to God as a tithe. He said, oh, this is my tithe, but it's not really a tithe sometimes. 
You know, a tithe, the literal translation is a tenth. You know, in the Old Testament law, you were required to give a tenth of your gross income. You were required to give that, not just of your money. If you farmed, you're required to give a tenth of your crops. You're required to give a tenth of your home garden. If you're growing, you know, mint in your garden back then, you were required to give a tenth of it. You're required to give a tenth of everything possible. But the religious leaders had turned that into a checkbox that you could live however you wanted to live, make any decision you wanted to make with the rest of your money, but as long as you gave that tenth to God, you, God was happy with you. Well, you know, giving a tenth to God, some, you know, that, that is a struggle for, for you know, all of us at times to, to give financially to the Lord and trust him with, with uh, that as though God is not trustworthy enough. But think about it in, in, in terms like this. Paul wrote in Romans, you know, that we are dead to the law, meaning the stuff in the law, the laws that are written in the law being fulfilled in Jesus, you know, it, we're dead to it. So you would say, okay, I'm dead to the law. I'm dead to giving a tenth. I'm dead to giving my first fruits. I'm just going to give whatever I'm going to give, and that's, that's all good and, and great. But what Paul goes on to describe there is because we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it's not that we should give less, it's that we should give more. Not because God needs our money, not because the church needs your money. And hear me as the preacher, the church, God is going to take care of his church. He's going to take care of it with or without your money. He's got it. He's always come through, always delivered, and he's not about to fail now. It's about your heart. It's about how much do you trust God. It's about how much do you trust him in what you give. And that was what Paul was saying in, in describing we're dead to the law. And then he, he spends a massive chunk of time in 2 Corinthians talking about giving more almost than any other topic he talks about in writing to the Corinthians. Um, he says you need to trust God. Trust him enough to give. Let, okay, 10%, let that be a baseline. Let that be your first fruits. And then work on that. As your faith grows as a Christian, so should your giving. Because our giving is reflective of the faith in our hearts. How much do we trust God? And so the language here, first fruits, he's saying uh, these are the first fruits. These believers are the first fruits in that they have given everything in their life to God. Everything. All the way up to the point of death. They've given everything to God. And here they are displayed beside Jesus in heaven, having given all to him. And so a Jew reading this, reading that first fruits language, it would click in their brain this, this understanding of a tithe. And they say, okay, these are those who have given to God. Not just money, not just their farm products. They have, have given of themselves everything they've got. And they've been faithful. But there's a key phrase right there in the middle of that that jumped out at me as I've been studying this. It's in the middle of that verse 4, right there. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Think about that phrase just for a second. Just, just chew that over like, like a cow on cud. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And this is in the midst of massive persecution. This is in the midst of a time when it's illegal to be a Christian. Christians are getting their heads cut off left, right, and center. And he says, these have followed the Lamb wherever he goes. The Lamb being Jesus. Wherever he goes. Just try to apply that phrase to yourself for a second. If you were to follow Jesus wherever he wanted you to go, 
doing whatever he wanted you to do, surrendering whatever he wanted you to surrender, would you be willing? Or is there a subconscious cap on how much you're willing to give and how far you're willing to go? Like if Jesus dropped down and gave you a vision right now in a green pew, he's knelt down in a green pew right in front of you, and he says, I want you to be a missionary, sell everything you have this week, and go to India. Would you say, yeah, that's not Jesus. That is, I had a bad egg for breakfast this morning. That's a problem. That is, that's the devil. He doesn't, that is not Jesus. Or, or if Jesus tells you to, Drop that streaming platform. Or if Jesus tells you you need to drop that relationship that has been detrimental, that friendship that's been detrimental to your growth and mental health. If Jesus says you need to sell that, whatever that thing is, uh, the boat, the car, the thing that almost you have put on a pedestal as your God, you need to give that up and follow me. Would you be willing do it. I was reading this morning in, in, in my time with the Lord about when Jesus called Matthew as a tax collector. Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. Jesus just walks by and says, follow me. Matthew doesn't hesitate. Matthew, who's only known opulence and wealth being a Roman tax collector, he says, says he just immediately left, called all his friends and said, come to my house. We're having dinner with Jesus. I just quit my job. Yeehaw. It, 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 could this be said? Could this be on your tombstone? Follow, I followed the Lamb wherever He went. I mean, that's that's the call here. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Follow Him wherever He goes. No matter how difficult it gets, no matter how hard it is, no matter no, no matter the opposition you may face, are you willing to follow the Lamb wherever He goes? It's that wherever we get hung up on. Like okay, like. Can you, I mean, we want Jesus to define how far is wherever. How, how far, how, give me a dollar sign, Jesus, on what I can expect upon this whatever business. Like, like how far is wherever. But Jesus isn't going to give us that far advanced notice. He wants us to trust him today. And then when we get to today, he wants us to trust him Tomorrow. Just trust him for today and see what he brings tomorrow. Trust him with the step you have right now. Follow him wherever he goes. I was reading a deal this week about a pastor who many years ago came under a whole lot of heat because they were saying, Pastor, if you just tell us, tell us your plan, what, 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 where, where we're going with this. He says, I don't know. God just told me to do this. I don't, we'll find out when we get there, I guess. And he stayed the course, and, and God blessed in a tremendous way. But that's the thing. Are you willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes? This is what John sees when he looks at these believers. Look at verse 6. Then, then, there's that word then, so it's a new section. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. 
So John says, okay, now something else is happening. So again, we're still in the midst of, this isn't chronological. This is, the, this is in the middle of the section talking about the people taking part in the end times. He says, okay, Jesus and the 144,000, they're doing one thing, and now we've got an angel flying directly overhead and sharing the gospel everywhere. He's, this is representative of the gospel being spread to the ends of the earth. Everybody hearing the gospel at some point. Uh, worship God. He says, worship God. Judgment's coming. Worship God now. Believe in God now. The end is about here. Worship God now. Verse 8. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, Babylon is used in Revelation to describe an evil culture. Uh, at times, it is believed to be a worldwide evil culture, or it could be the capital of the evil culture, representing all of it. Uh, but it's that idea of, of an evil world culture here. And so the second angel shows up and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And now, again, like I said, this is talking about the individuals. This actually happens in Revelation chapter 18. So a few chapters uh, away in just a little bit, we're going to kick back into the chronological things of happening. Uh, Babylon, this evil world culture, does fall in descriptive language in Revelation chapter 18. And so a second angel shows up here in what John is seeing uh, in this description of, uh, of the people involved in the end and uh, the world culture is being destroyed. Uh, look at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on, its, on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So we get a picture of judgment here. Another angel shows up. So if anyone worships the beast and takes the mark on his forehead or his hand. So just like God marks his people, the enemy marks his people. And they're going to be judged, he says. Uh, he says, they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength. Now that phrase there, poured full strength, that literally means undiluted. Uh, because the most common form of wine back in the day was one part wine, three parts water. But to drink it straight, undiluted, was, was strong. And so he's, that's the image he's giving here with this word, uh, that it is full strength. He's saying, this is God's undiluted wrath, undiluted punishment, undiluted judgment on anyone who chooses not to believe. And so this, again, remember, the gospel just came a few verses ago. And so it's trying, God is trying to get as many people to believe as possible before the end comes, before the end has to come. He's saying, you've got to believe because the end's coming. You've got to believe because it's about to all be over. You've got to believe now because it's coming. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. That's in contrast to believers gaining rest in Jesus in heaven, soul rest in heaven, and they will have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice in heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. 
Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So he says, here's a call for endurance. So he's saying the judgment's coming, but then he challenges believers, endure. So when he says saints, he's meaning believers. That word literally means holy ones, followers of God. Um, May you endure, persevere, uh, because they're experiencing, you know, great persecution, great difficulty in the world at this point. Um, But that difficulty that's in the world is not going to last forever. So he says, endure beyond what you're currently experiencing, and then you will receive rest from the godly work. You will be rewarded for serving God, for following after Jesus. Just endure, stay faithful. Uh, Grow the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Just endure. But the thing about endurance, has anybody ever run a race before? Like a long race, not just a sprint? Anybody? A couple of you? Endurance doesn't happen by accident. Like you're not going to go out there having never trained and run a race and then all of a sudden be able to pop out 21 miles. It's just not going to happen. Endurance doesn't happen by accident. You have to work at it. And when it comes to life, when he says there, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, for the believers to endure, to persevere. When, if we want to endure, we must follow Jesus, as the call was already made, because Jesus sets the pace for endurance. So we have to match Jesus' pace for faithful endurance. Match Jesus' pace for faithful endurance. I came across this interesting video not too long ago, it was a race. Uh, it was a, 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 an international world uh, assembly um, championship race. And they had something in the race I had never seen before because, you know, when I've watched, you know, big world races, it's usually the Olympics, you know. But this just happened to pop up. And uh, what was fascinating about this to me is I saw them run. They were all spread out on the track, and they start this race. It was only like a 400, so that's just like one lap. And uh, one person went to the front of the pack, and then about halfway to the end of the race, this person just veered off into the middle of the field and stopped racing. I thought, that person just quit, I guess. I don't know what's going on. Uh, But then I heard the announcers describe it, and looking up what this was, was uh, there are many races where they have an intentional pace setter. Because some of these racers will have people from uh, the same country in the same race. And they will have determined beforehand which person they want to win. And so what they'll do is employ this strategy to have one of their runners, if it's a however long the race is, have one of their runners just shoot out quick so that everyone else in the pack will think that they're falling behind and this person's got it and they, they've got the endurance to last the whole way. So everyone else will speed up going beyond what their pace should be, trying to catch up. And then about halfway around, they're all exhausted. The other person from that person's country will speed up past them all and win the gold medal for their country. And so what the race organizers thought this was deceptive and wrong and you shouldn't employ this kind of strategy in a race. You should just use your energy and you should give it your best and not do this kind of mess. They started using pace setters. They would put this pace setter in the race and until the pace setter leaves the race, everybody has to stay behind the pace setter. And so the pace setters train specifically only to run half the race. 
And they would determine beforehand how fast they want that pace setter to run. And so they had this pace setter, and so everyone is, is right there lined up behind this pace setter waiting. It's kind of like the pace car in a car race, waiting for that pace setter to veer off and then things kick into gear. Because by that point, you don't have time to employ that strategy that people did before they employed pace setters. And so everybody had to match the pace of the pace setter or they were out of the race. And so when it comes to faithful endurance in the life of the believer, we have to match the pace of Jesus or we fall out of the race. Sometimes in our own lives, we try to go too fast, too hard, and we burn out, doing too much, missing what Jesus has for us in our lives. Or sometimes we go too slow because we just don't want to do because it's too hard, it's too embarrassing, it's too difficult to share the gospel with so-and-so and do that and sacrifice for Jesus and follow him wherever he wants us to go. But if we make intentional effort to match the pace of Jesus, our lives will change. Not just our lives, but the lives of everyone around us that we impact will change when we begin to match the pace of Jesus. Match the pace of Jesus for faithful endurance. Because he knows how fast we should go. He knows how much we should be doing. And the only way to be able to know the pace that Jesus is operating at is to spend time with him. You're not going to match Jesus' pace if you can't see him, if you can't hear him. There was another race that I, that I saw where it was uh, a, people who were running were blind. And they would strap their wrist to the wrist of somebody who could see and they had to trust the person who could see to know when to run, when to turn, and when to slow down so they wouldn't run into anybody else. How much do we trust Jesus in our race? How much do we trust that he knows what he's doing in having us only run at a certain pace and not, not try to outpace what he's doing for us or not try to, to go too slow but to match exactly what he has for us to do? How much do we trust him in that? we got to match his pace for faithful endurance. Match his pace with what he would have for us. Trust that he is smarter than we are. Look at verse 14. John gives us that next section word. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle, in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. But he who sat on the cloud, so he who sat on the cloud, swung the sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So now we're going to get to this section talking about these angels. Um, this first one says it's like the Son of Man, and some people take that to mean this is Jesus, because Son of Man was a title Jesus used for himself very frequently in the Gospels. But notice the passage there in verse 14 says he was like a Son of Man. Like he, he, he wasn't the Son of Man. He looked like a human. But also notice this angel with the sickle is given instruction by another angel. If the first angel were Jesus, you think Jesus would be receiving instruction from an angel? Probably not. Jesus would be the one giving the instruction. This is just an illustration, a, a, an example of the reaping of the humans on the earth uh, at the end of time being taken to judgment. 
but I want to point out something uh, unique after we read this next little part. Um, look at verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, God's presence, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's like 184-ish miles. Uh, so obviously, the second reaping, the, the second group of people who are brought up and judged uh, are unbelievers, people who, who refuse to believe in Jesus because they're taken and they're judged uh, in the way that they're judged. But what I want to point out is that word ripe. Uh, that's used to describe both the first group of people in verse 15 and the second group of people in verse 18. Because in the original language, it's actually two separate words. It's not the same word. In the first group of people who are just taken up, and you see that they're not judged like the second group of people are. The first group of people, it says, are fully ripe. That usually refers to the ripening of grain, and the word actually implies being overripe being overripe, their time is, like, it's really time to grab them and bring them up. But that second word, ripe, down there in verse 18, obviously is used to talk about grapes and grapevines, and it means perfectly ripe. Um, but what we see in the use of these two different words is two different crops are being gathered here. Two different crops, uh, what I believe to be both believers in the first group and unbelievers in the second group. Um, and again, this happens chronologically in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 describes this in depth. Uh, but what we're getting here from John is this is kind of what's happening here in the reaping, in them being gathered up for judgment that we're going to see later on. Uh, this is what's, what's, what's going on in that uh, situation. But now look at ver, uh, chapter 15. Let's get just a little bit here. Then I saw another sign in heaven, that word then, so new section. Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So just two things here in these couple verses. The wrath of God is finished. So he sees angels come out. And they're bringing with them the final judgments. After them, it's all over. No more judgment. This is going to be the end of the end of the end. You had the seal judgments, then you had the trumpet judgments, and now these angels are coming out, and they're about to be given some bowls with the wrath of God. So there's, these are the bowl judgments. Uh, and he says, these angels are coming out, uh, but the emphasis is on that phrase. These are the last of the judgments. This is the last of those being punished. He said... Uh, uh, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, the sea of glass, back in the early parts of Revelation, were in front of God's throne, in God's throne room, in God's presence, mingled with fire. Fire is usually, meant, uh, usually representative of judgment. Uh, but he also sees those who have conquered the beast and its image, similar to the beginning of chapter 14 with the 144,000. He says, they have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. 
And they're standing there with harps of God. They have conquered. They are victorious. But think about it for a second. They're in heaven, right? And how do we get to heaven? Like, you believe in Jesus, but then there is, you know, you can't just, like, walk in physically. You've got to die first. So every one of these people who are there, who have conquered, everyone who has been victorious, they're dead physically, getting their eternal bodies. But he still says, even though they have died, and the description here is, you know, they've lived through the tribulation, they've most likely, these believers, have been killed by the beast, by the Antichrist. But he says, even though they've been killed by the Antichrist, they have been victorious over the Antichrist. Antichrist killed them, but they're victorious, as is in, in indication with the harps. Harps are a symbol of celebration for victory. Well, there was one guy I read, his name is William Barclay, and he said it like this. It was too good not to include. He said, the real victory is not to live in safety, to evade trouble cautiously and prudently to preserve life. The real victory is to face the worst that evil can do, and if need be, to be faithful unto death. And so that's why these Christians are said to have been victorious, even though the beast killed them. The Antichrist killed them. They are victorious over him. It's also why the early church, when when a Christian was taken and martyred for their faith, it wasn't called their day of death. The early church called it their day of victory. They had won. They had conquered their day of victory. And it's all because God defines victory differently. God defines success differently. The world will tell you to be successful, to be victorious, you've got to have this, that, and the other thing. You would think if the Antichrist killed them, they're not victorious over the Antichrist. The Antichrist is victorious over them. But God judges things differently. God defines victory differently. It's what God told Samuel back in the book of 1 Samuel. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God judges things differently than we do. Devoid of sin, devoid of evil, devoid of selfishness, uh, selfishness. God judges things differently. He defines victory differently. They were victorious because they were faithful. <clears throat> they were victorious because they did not give in to the temptation that the beast was bringing. They were victorious because as the call was back in chapter 14, they have endured and persevered. They have matched the pace of Jesus and made it to the end of the race. Look at verse 3. And they, sang, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Everyone will worship. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The question in that song there is saying, everyone will recognize the power of Jesus at this point. 
a glimpse of, like, it's like a glimpse of the end. It's like skipping ahead, some spoilers coming for what's coming in just a few chapters. Is who will not fear? Who will not glorify you? The implication being everybody will. As has been said earlier in Scripture, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. There will come a time when it will, uh, no one will be able to deny the greatness of God. And so at this point, these, these angels coming out to bring the last judgment, the victorious believers standing there in the throne room of God, he's saying this is the moment everyone recognizes the power of God and no one can do anything but recognize his glory. No, lo- no more delusion, no more self-deception about the reality of God's sovereignty and his role in the universe. Look at verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. That is the tent of witness. That's the tabernacle. That is the temple. That is God's presence. The holy of holies is opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure uh, uh, bright linen with golden sashes on their chests. So they're coming out of God's presence. They are endorsed by God. They're, they're, they're going to bring about the end. Look at these last two verses. And one of the four living creatures, those circling the throne of God, worshiping constantly, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now I love that phrase at the end of verse 7. John is describing the whole scene. He's saying, right? Angels come out, seven angels, they're given seven bowls, going to introduce the, the end, the last judgments. And John says, God lives forever and ever. That's like a little tag of worship John includes. You know, that's not descriptive of the scene, but John can't help in seeing what God's doing. John can't help but worship God who lives forever and ever. And then it says in that moment when this is the beginning of the very, very end, the last of the judgments, it says the sanctuary, the throne room, the holy of holies, filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Now notice, it's very distinctive in the language. It's not God's glory and power filling the sanctuary. It's smoke from God's glory and power. It's just a side effect of God's glory and power. Implication being if God's glory and power showed up, there would be no sanctuary. All that the sanctuary can take is the smoke, the side effect coming off of how uh, glorified and powerful God is. And it fills the temple and no one can go in. No one can interrupt what God is doing. The presence of God is so powerful that even the side effects of his presence are powerful. And he's doing this. And in our lives, I mean, the presence of God is powerful. I mean, if we were to to try to live this life without the presence of God, we would fail miserably. And so in keeping with what he's been talking throughout chapter 14 and 15, we need to understand that God's presence is powerful, so we need to get as close as we possibly can to his presence. Get as close as we possibly can to his presence. Are you so close to Jesus that all the other stuff fades away? Are you close enough to only focus on perfect Jesus and not the imperfections of this broken world? That's something Jesus has been been shouting in my brain these last few weeks. If 
I find myself complaining about just things or people or situations, it's because I am focused on the imperfections in the broken world or the imperfections in the broken people or the imperfections in the broken system. And I'm not focused on perfect Jesus. So when we complain, when we have trouble, when we have difficulty, when, when, when we get sidetracked on those little you know, mental rabbit trails, it's because we're not focused on perfect Jesus. We're, po- we're focused on imperfect situations. That doesn't mean we should never give attention to imperfect situations. I mean, they need our attention sometimes. But we should never allow them to draw our attention away from perfect Jesus. If we settle into complaints and live there, as we all tend to do, I do. I'm at the top of that list. I do. You run down that rabbit trail and, and, and uh, you complain about this and then about this and then about this and before you know it, you're in a position complaining about something that you don't even know how you got there but now that you're complaining about it, you're not going to leave and you're just continuing to live there and so that every time that subject is brought up, you just instantly go right back to the complaining department here and you're just residing in the negativity and what I've discovered about myself as Jesus has been, been showing me this these last few weeks is that's all because I'm not focused on Jesus in that situation. I'm all focused about the imperfection rather than perfect Jesus. Because I wasn't, you know, like, let's use the illustration of a runner. I wasn't running right up next to Jesus matching his pace. Or, you know, what they say is that the lead runner in a race creates a slipstream behind them as they're cutting through the air, cutting through the wind, so that the person who is immediately right behind them, I mean almost right up touching them, it has an easier time running because they're in the slipstream of the lead runner. But you have to be right up on them to get the benefit of that slipstream. And so if we're going to run, the, the, the match the pace of Jesus, if we're going to be there, we've got to get as close as possible to Jesus. Get right up on his back as he's running and he's cutting through the difficulty. Get right up on him so that we're able to, to, to run with his pace. We're able to run in his slipstream. We've got to get as close as we possibly can to his presence to be able to run as he's running. And to be that close, my eyes have to only be on him. There's a great video. You've got to go and search it. It's from the Olympics a number of years ago. I showed it here one time many years ago, uh, but it's from the Olympics that were in London. It's from a, psych, a, a bicycle race, and they've turned, the, the two lead bikes are way out in front of the pack, and the guy who's in front has been in front for a while, and I remember they turned down the road, it's like right in front of Buckingham Palace or something, and they're coming up, and the guy's been cycling, and he's going so hard, and he does the thing you're never supposed to do. He looks over his shoulder, but he looks over his left shoulder, and he looks, and he sees no one. But what he doesn't know is a second-place guy was right here. And he looks over, sees no one, but as he's looking, and it, I mean, it's a great shot because the, the uh, uh, camera angle is from the front. And so you can see him look and see that he doesn't see the other guy. And he looks, and you can see the surprise on this guy's face because as the lead racer looks, he lightens his pace just a little bit, just enough that that second place guy passes him and flies right by. He'd been sitting in the slipstream the whole time and the other guy never knew he was there until he got so distracted, took his eyes off of the goal that he lost his gold medal that was easily his. I mean, they were within like 
20 yards of the finish line. If he had just kept his eyes on the, the finish line, there's no way that other guy would have caught him. No way. But he took his eyes off the goal. He took his eyes off of what he had been training for for years, possibly decades. And in one moment of looking away from the goal, he lost his prize. We need to get as close as we possibly can to Jesus. Get right up on Jesus so that our eyes, he feels our whole field of vision. So that as we experience the situations that are difficult and problematic and troublesome, and we, as we interact with people who are difficult and problematic and troublesome, that our whole field of vision is Jesus. So that as we face everything we face, we're, we're, we're facing it through Jesus. We're allowing Jesus to change us. We're allowing Jesus to, to turn us into who he wants us to be. How, do you need to get close to Jesus today? Do you need to allow Jesus to change you today? I read a story this morning, again, in my quiet time, uh, at the end of Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals this leper, guy that everybody in society hates. Jesus heals him and tells him, don't go telling you know, the world because it's not my time yet. That's coming later. Well, this guy goes and tells everybody. And the language, it's like the last verse of Mark chapter 1. It says, he went and told so many people that they came from the ends of the earth to come to Jesus, from all corners of the world to Jesus. Because of the testimony of one guy who'd gotten so close to Jesus that he was changed. Never underestimate the effectiveness of one person changed by Jesus. It says, everybody came to see Jesus because of one guy's testimony. Never underestimate the effectiveness of one person changed by Jesus. That could be you. Are you so close to Jesus, matching his pace, that you're that one changing everything? Do you need to get close to Jesus? Maybe you need to get closer to Jesus than you presently are. We all do. And what we come to realize is the closer we get to Jesus, the more we need to know about Jesus. It's like the more you know about Scripture, the more you realize, I need to know more about Scripture. There's still so much more to know, so much further to go, so much deeper than we ever thought possible. But maybe you need to get close to Jesus today for the first time. Do you need to believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins are forgiven? And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Is today the day you need to make that decision? Say, I need to believe in Jesus. I don't want this judgment stuff. I don't want to uh, not be in the presence of God for all time. I want heaven and eternity and the presence of Jesus now. If you want eternal life, this is where it begins. You believe in Jesus and receive that eternal life. So the question for all of us, will you get close to Jesus today? whether for the first time or another time. Will you come to him today? And if you want to believe for the first time, I'll be here at the front. Jared will be at the back. We'd love to talk to you, pray with you, celebrate with you. If you believe, we got a Bible. Um, we got Bibles for, you know, whoever believes, whether it's a little kid, medium kid, youth, adult. We got Bibles. And if you believe in Jesus, we, you need a Bible, and we've got one to give you. But you need to believe in Jesus today.